2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and from Luke chapter 20. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 to 5 and 13 to 17. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letters supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you? I used to tell you these things. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself And God our Father, who loved us, and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. And from Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, uh, Linda. 
Let's pray just as we come to look at God's word this morning. Father, we thank you that uh, on this great day of remembrance, uh, we can come back to Scripture and be reminded not just of the great things that you have done, but of the great things that you will do. And so we come to those who are uh, here now by your grace and are heading to heaven by your grace. And we pray that you would encourage us in that way, for Christ's sake. Amen. So it was meant to be the war to end all wars, so we were told. But of course it has not turned out that way. People say that it must never happen again. And I suppose it's true that a global conflagration like World Wars I and II is unlikely. With the proliferation of nuclear weapons, such a war would not last very long. But all over the world, war continues. The body bags and the coffins draped in the national flag are flown home to Bryce Norton. Inquest after inquest is held. It seems to me that apart from the bit of grass outside Parliament, there's probably no more televised spot at the moment than the door of the Oxford Coroner's Court. And I guess that we all know that war is necessary sometimes. We have become familiar, I trust, with the just war theory and the arguments for for and against any particular conflict. The insatiable appetite for news means that our papers and our screens are full not just of discussion about the latest war or threat of war, but graphic depictions of it from reporters right on the front line as they talk into their video phones. I caught the end this week of the Panorama program, perhaps you saw it, a reporter on the front line in Helmand province in Afghanistan with the Coldstream Guards. It was a remarkable piece of frontline journalism. It is very real, immediate, and yet it's odd, isn't it, that we can become strangely anaesthetized to it. So what I want you to do is keep a finger, please, if you could, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 on page 1190 and also on a finger in Luke 20. And I want to share from these two passages of scriptures which are set for today's readings. They're the uh, common worship uh, set uh, readings for today. I want to share four observations from them on this Remembrance Day. And my first observation is this. Life is not meaningless. Life is not meaningless. Let me tell you about a man called Peter. He was born in 1923 and left school as a brilliant athlete in 1941 immediately signing up and joining the 4th 7th Dragoon Guards after training at Sandhurst, where he won the Sword of Honour. On June the 6th, 1944, two days before his 21st birthday, he commanded a tank squadron, A squadron, that landed on Gold Beach with the first wave of the D-Day invasion. Encountering surprisingly little resistance and specifically no German panzers, his squadron pushed inland faster than expected. En route, they liberated the village of Croy. 
After a few miles, Peter halted his squadron of three tanks, climbed out of his tank, and strolled over to the commander of the squadron operating immediately on his right flank to discuss their best course of action. At that moment, a shell from a British cruiser, friendly fire, landed smack on his own tank, killing his entire crew and severely wounding the rest of the squadron. On his 21st birthday, two days later, Peter's leg was amputated well above the knee and he was sent home to recover. Peter lived for another 63 years with shrapnel in his back and questions in his mind. Why should he have been spared while all his comrades were killed? He died three weeks ago and I know that the story is true because Peter was my dearly loved father-in-law. I look at my wife, his daughter, his eldest daughter, and her siblings, of which there are three. I look at our children and theirs, and now our, gan- our grandchildren, and I can make some sense, I can get some meaning in his survival. But if I did not have a scriptural worldview, that worldview hinted at in 2 Thessalonians 2, for instance, I might, like Peter, be struggling to make any sense of it. But Paul explains that this interim period of history in which we live will be characterized by what he calls here lawlessness. By lawlessness, he means everything that is opposed to Christ's and God's purposes for the world. Paul anticipates in 2 Thessalonians 2 not a steady progression towards utopia, the utopia that perhaps the Victorians optimistically looked for with all their evolutionary zeal, but Paul speaks of an increasing sense of terror and chaos as the day of Christ's return draws closer. But he says, don't be unsettled, don't be alarmed, don't be deceived, Do not think the world is meaningless, because God knows what he is doing. A day is coming when lawlessness will be overthrown by the Lord Jesus. We know as Christians that life, however painful and mysterious events might be, is not just a random series of accidental events. But there is a God, as Jesus calls him in Luke 20, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and And Jacob, the God of Jesus, who makes sense and will make sense of it all. Life is not meaningless. Secondly, life is not all there is. How terrible it would be to believe that this life is all there is. How terrible to have been a great athlete with a great promising life ahead of you, sword of honor at Sandhurst, and have your leg blown to pieces by friendly fire before you are even 21. How dreadful if that was all that there is. And of course, we could point to many other examples. We've seen some of them graphically portrayed on the screen just now. I heard only on Thursday, Friday, of a brilliant young man of 21 
working with Jackie Pullinger, the great Christian worker in Hong Kong, as a volunteer, a man, young man who had refound his faith from which he had wandered at university, gone out to work as a volunteer with Jackie, and has just died. The person who rang me said, what a shocking waste that is. But life is not all there is. So in Luke 20, we see that the Sadducees, who do not believe in the resurrection, which is why they were sad, you see. Very old joke. The Sadducees come to Jesus and try to trick him by asking him about marriage in heaven. But Jesus was not fazed by their question. Unlike the Sadducees, he knew there was another life other than this one. Those, he said, who are considered worthy of taking part in that age. Not this age, but that age. There is another life. Paul writes, God called you to our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The glory that is to come. Behind all the biblical writer's worldview is the confident hope that there is a greater reality to come. Don't misunderstand me, though, and we should be careful not to misunderstand Scripture. That does not devalue this life. This is not a dress rehearsal. This existence is of immense importance. This existence is of ultimate moral value. This life is where our eternity is determined. Jesus shared this life. But if it goes wrong, or disappoints, or is snatched away prematurely all of which happens all the time, we are not to suppose that there is nothing to live for, that there is nothing else. The lawless one, the architect of wars, will be overthrown by the splendor of Jesus' coming. We are to hang on to that when this life is tough. Life is not meaningless. Life is not all there is. But thirdly, heaven is not like this life. Imagine if heaven was like this life. Eternal teenage tantrums. Eternal aging process. Just think, those of you who are struggling to hear in church now, think how deaf you would be after a million years. How deaf could you become? Computers breaking down eternally. Eternal personality clashes at work. Jesus, of course, is having a bit of fun with the Sadducees. In heaven, he says, the dead do not marry like we do here. They cannot even die, he says. They are like angels. They are God's children. Of course, Trapped in finite lives here, we cannot really conceive of what an infinite heaven will be like. But we should hold on to one thing for sure. As we remember today, those who heroically fought through the hell on earth of war, whether it be in the horror of the trenches, the terror of the D-Day landings, or the inferno of modern war, heaven... Heaven is not just an extension of hell on earth. Heaven is heaven. Fourthly, 
not all will be saved. Not all will be saved. Perhaps this is the most sobering of my four negative points this morning. Perhaps, in a way, it's the most shocking and the most controversial. After all, it is nice to be told that life is, after all, meaningful. It is nice to be told that there is more to come and that that the life to come will be better than this life. But Jesus says it is for those considered worthy. Who do you suppose those might be? Paul says that the lawless one, the Antichrist, the harbinger of war, will deceive those who are perishing. He assumes that there will be some. It's interesting that the compilers of the common worship lectionary do not seem to agree with everything that Paul writes. So they don't let us read a section of 2 Thessalonians 2. It is as if it's not in the Bible. For instance, they don't want us to read this. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. I'm reading verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians 2. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. We're not allowed to read that in our lectionary today. It is, I suggest, one of the reasons why most of the churches in this country are empty. Because we have adopted an antiseptic religion that refuses to acknowledge the reality of sin and the reality of judgment. We have a tame God now who only says nice things to us. This is much more uncomfortable. But Paul knows the seriousness of life. And on Remembrance Day, we should remember the seriousness of life. And Paul writes, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. So those whom Jesus counts worthy to share in that age, to be like the angels, to be children of God, are those who love the truth. Well, what is that truth? Well, it's there in verse 14. He called you, he writes, through our gospel. If life is not meaningless, and not all there is, and heaven is real and wonderful, then surely we should be crying out in response, how then can I be saved? How can I be saved? How can anyone be saved? That must be the question that we answer. We shouldn't go home with some false comfort that somehow mysteriously all things will be well with no change at all. Life is a very serious business and death is a very real reality. How then can I be saved? Well, here it is in 2 Thessalonians 2. It's spelled out for us, lest we should be misled or told a lie. First, we have something to admit. We must admit that we need the help of God's Spirit to be good. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We cannot be good enough in our own strength for heaven. We cannot be saved. 
Paul uses the word sanctified here, without being washed, as we say, in the blood of the Lamb. We're going to come to communion in a moment. We're going to remember that it cost a great deal for us to be saved. We need to admit that we need help. Actually, Remembrance Day is a day when people face reality and face the reality of human weakness and human uh, sin most clearly. And I think that when people go to church and are told that all will be well and all manner of things will be well, they think to themselves, that doesn't can't be true. Human beings aren't as good as that. We need help. We need saving. We need rescuing. We need forgiving. Let's admit, as we cry out to God, how can I be saved? Let's admit that we need the help of God's Spirit. Let's believe, secondly, in the truth that Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world to die in our place and rescue us for heaven. Believe in him today. Believe the truth. And you will be saved. We must count the cost as Jesus' followers had to count the cost. They faced the ridicule of those like the Sadducees. Of course there's no resurrection. How absurd. We face the mockery of the secularists. You're believing a fairy tale. We face the ravages of our own doubts, not least in times of suffering. So do not suppose that it is going to be easy to follow Jesus to heaven. It is costly to stand firm. And fourthly, we have something to do. We must decide, as Paul Paul says here, that we will hold fast to the teaching. Stand firm and hold to the teaching. Admit you need help. Believe in Jesus, your rescuer. Consider carefully the cost of following him and hold fast to the truth. Let's pray. Heaven awaits. Father, we are grateful to you that because of the sacrifice of so many, we can come here freely week by week, can open your word and hear its challenge and its truth. Help us to be those who weigh these things, who think them through, who face the reality and the seriousness of life and death, the reality and seriousness of our rebellion against you and our need for forgiveness. And help us to live minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, in the wonderful knowledge that you love us and have rescued us in Jesus. May we be those who bring your love to the world. For his name's sake. Amen.